Okay, folks, uh, we're in um, we're in lesson 25. We're going to look at Numbers 26 today through chapters 35. Again, we're not going to read these passages because of the length, but we're going to go through this. We're doing a survey, kind of help you to understand what's going on here. Next week will be our final lesson in Numbers, okay? Next week, we're going to wrap up numbers. Then we're going to hit Deuteronomy, okay? So we're going to probably spend a couple months in Deuteronomy. There's a lot of material there. And then we'll be done with the first five books of the New Testament, and then we'll move on to the next section of Old Testament uh, survey, which would be uh, looking at Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, okay, from that period before uh, the kings, Okay. All right, so let's look today. We're going to look a couple of things here. There's going to be, first of all, in chapters 26 through chapter 27, verse 11, there is a discussion concerning the inheritance in Canaan. Now, when we talk about inheritance, usually in, when you and I think of inheritance, we think of what a loved one or a family member left us when they died. Okay, because so usually that's what we talk about in inheritance, okay? With regards to Israel and the issue of inheritance, it's a completely different concept. An inheritance here with Israel has to do with the portion of land that was given to them when they entered into Canaan. Okay, so every one of the families there was given a portion of land. And it was, it was their inheritance. It was what they were to receive when they entered into the land. And then that inheritance would be passed down to the male heir, the first male heir from that point on, to continue on the family name. So that's why it was so important in Jewish culture to continue on the family name because they would continue on with their inheritance. Now, I want you to understand this is so important when we get into later chapters and later in later books of the Old Testament, you're going to see this issue of inheritance coming up and someone, a male, to carry it on. So for instance, that's what the whole issue is in the book of Ruth. Remember Ruth? She's a Moabitist. But Naomi has an inheritance. She no longer has a male heir to continue on with the inheritance of Naomi's dead husband because her sons are dead. All right? So that's where Boaz comes in. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer who then what? Marries Ruth and then continues on the inheritance. Do you understand? So we're going to see that as we move on. You also see that when we get over into 1 Kings, when King Ahab wants a certain vineyard, I mean, a certain olive grove, but the guy won't sell it to him because it's his what? It's his inheritance. And because it's his, it's his inheritance, he won't sell it to Ahab. Well, then Ahab conspires to have the guy killed, which then results in a confrontation with with Elijah about the murder of this guy for this piece of property. So you, you understand. In fact, you'll see later prohibitions in, the, in God's word where it says, don't remove the ancient landmarks. Now, what in the world does that have to do? 
don't remove the boundary stones. Why? Because those were set up to designate what? The inheritance. Okay? So here we go. Let's look at this together. First of all, we're going to talk about the inheritance. Since the original generation of the Israelites who left Egypt had died, another census was taken. Okay? So now they took another census. So in the 40 years... Remember the first census that was just basically pointing out how many males of a certain age were there among the 11 tribes? Then what's going on now is, is okay, that 40 years is over. All those folks are dead except two. And so they take another census, okay? Another census. So the total number of men who were 20 years and older and fit for military duty was 601,730. So that's what they, they total. Right, now stop for a moment. That tells you how big Israel is. They're only numbering guys 20 years and older who are fit for military service. And that's just from the 11 tribes. All right? So they're not numbering women. And they're not numbering children or anyone younger than, what, 20. So you're talking a lot of folks here. Over a million. All right? So the total numbers of men who were 20 years and older and fit for military duty was 601,730. This was the number of men from the 11 tribes and did not include the tribe of Levi. Now, you're saying, George, it's actually 12 tribes, isn't it? Yes. However, Manassas and Ephraim are considered of the tribe of who? Joseph. Okay, that's why they're called half-tribes. All right? Half-tribes. And so, of those 12, which are actually 11... Uh, that did not include the tribe of Levi, okay? The tribe of Levi. So they weren't included in this census. So the tribal allotment in the land was determined by the population figures of the tribes. So when you talk about going into the land, God would tell them up to a certain point you would have this property and so forth. So the portion that was given to each tribe when they entered into the land, was based upon the number of men they had in this census. So some tribes were smaller, they got a smaller portion. Some tribes were larger, they got a larger portion. For instance, Judah got a large portion. Okay, So the tribal allotment in the land was determined by the population figures of the tribes. Now, the casting of lots would determine where the tribes would settle in the land of Canaan. So at first they would base everything on how big the portion was, but then they would cast lots. And now we're going to talk about that here in a moment. They would cast lots to determine where they would settle. Okay? Where they would settle. Now, the lots that were cast were most likely the Urim and the Thummim of the high priest. Now, if you look, I gave you a biblical note there to talk about this, because you're like, what is that? Well, we're not sure what it was. They're not dice, okay? Although, they were probably two type 
of stones that had maybe some special markings or something, but they were always kept in the high priest's uh, breastplate of his outfit that, that he would wear, and he would wear that breastplate as he entered into the Holy of Holies, but he would use those those uh, lots, as they are called, to determine major decisions concerning the nation of Israel. Okay, and so you'll see, I've given you with that note, several different references of where there it's talked about in the scripture, the Old Testament scripture. Okay, so, so this was most likely that. So the census, there was a census taken of the tribe of Levi, but it's a little bit different than the tribe, the census of the other men, of the other tribes. The census of the tribe of Levi numbered 23,000 men who were at least one month old. Okay, so that's different than the other census. The other census was based on how old did everybody have to be? 20 or older, and they had to be fit for what? Military service. With the tribe of Levi, though, it's completely different. It's every male one month and older that was counted. So this is telling you how small they are, okay? 23,000 men who were at least one month old. Now, the tribe of Levi was not numbered among the other 11 tribes of Israel. So they had a special place. So they weren't considered part of the other tribes of Israel, okay? As far as being there for battle or receiving an inheritance. And so, in fact, the Levites had no inheritance with the other tribes in the land of Canaan. They had no inheritance, no pieces of property, all right? This was due to the nature of their commitment and service to the Lord and the tabernacle. That's what they were devoted to. They were devoted to basically serving the Lord and serving him in the tabernacle. All right, now you're going to see when we get into Deuteronomy that there are going to be Levitical cities. There are going to be certain cities that the Levites will have control of. They're not going to have property, but they'll have some cities. And these cities will have a significant purpose. We'll see that when we get into the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? Of those who were numbered in the second census, no one had been numbered in the first census. All right, so there was nobody in this second census who was numbered in the first census. Nobody. So all that generation was dead. Okay? All that generation was dead. All of the men numbered in the first census had died with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. Okay? All of that generation was dead. All right? Except Joshua and Caleb. And they were the two spies who what? Said, let's go take the land. But the other ten said no, and therefore they had to wander for 40 years. All right, so now we've got a problem, though, because sometimes, okay, is every, let me ask you guys a question. Is every family guaranteed to have a male son? No. No, not at all. Sometimes there are families where all they have is girls, right? 
So I think about like my son Foster, his wife, his wife's family. You know, we've interacted with them like and, and stuff. They have, the Dios have three girls. Foster married one of them. Did you know what I'm saying? All right, so what do you do in a situation where you have no male heir to, first of all, receive an inheritance, and second of all, to carry it on? That's the problem, right? Okay, because everything's based in their system on you having an inheritance in the land. So that's what we're seeing here. We see this story now of the daughters of a man who died in the rebellion of Korah. They appear before Moses, okay? So the daughters of, of a man who died in the rebellion of Korah. Remember Korah? He was the one who was challenging Moses and Aaron's leadership and said that they should have, he was a Levite, and they should have a more of a, uh, of a, of a part in this. Well, remember he encouraged other Israelites to be involved with that, and they were all killed? Well, these are the daughters of a man from another tribe who got killed. And they're like, well, what do we do now? He's not here, we don't, he doesn't, he didn't have a son. Alright? So this man had no male sons when he died in his sins, now, it's interesting. That is a statement that is made in this passage. Died in his sins. We'll talk about that in a moment. This man had no male sons when he died in his sins and therefore had no inheritance in the land. That's significant, right? All right, first of all, have you ever heard that term, died in his sins? What does that mean? Yeah, he's going to hell. I mean, that is, he died without salvation, died without faith, died in judgment. Do you understand? And, and oftentimes you'll hear, hear folks refer to their family members who died without Christ as having what? Died in their sins. That means dying without forgiveness. Okay? So this man had no male heirs when he died in his sins. So the daughters asked why their father's name should be removed from the inheritance. Because basically, it's almost like, well, all right, well, sorry, he wasn't here. He doesn't have a part in this. And she's saying, why? Why, why is, they're saying, why, why is this possible? So they asked for a portion of the land among their father's brothers in the land. Okay, so they're asking for an inheritance among what, if he had been alive, he would have received an inheritance, what, among his brothers in the land. So the Lord commanded Moses to give them an inheritance among their father's brothers. So the Lord commands, yep, give them an inheritance. All right? And with that, he establishes, here's the next thing, the Lord also instituted a standard for receiving the inheritance when there is no male heir. So God, in fact, if you read this passage, it's amazing because it says, okay, in this situation, if there's no male heir, it goes to this one. And if there's no male heir, it goes to this one. And if there's no male heir, then it goes to this one. It's a pretty detailed list of who will receive that inheritance if there is no male heir. Do you understand? So you see the importance of the inheritance here, okay? Now, here's the problem now, because remember, there's a certain fella who can't go into the promised land. Who's that? 
Moses, because he, what? Sinned against God by striking the rock instead of speaking to it, all right? So, but he's the one who's leading the people. So now there has to, there's a, there is a discussion in the passage about who's going to lead them because he can't do it, okay? So the Lord told Moses to go up to Mount Ibrim to see the land that is being given to Israel. All right, so he's going to let Moses see the land, okay? He's going to let Moses see the land that's being given to Israel. So after seeing the land, Moses is told that he would die on the mountain. Moses is told, okay, you're going to die up here. Now, you're saying, how's that possible to see the land? Well, you know what? Uh, my daughter Madison right now is in Israel, okay? And she's been sending Lori and I photos and photos and pictures and telling us about different things. And, and like, for instance, she just told us she was at a place in southern Israel where she could look from her hotel room into Egypt, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. Wow. Okay? And, and, and she's up in a, in, a, in a part of the western part near the Jordan River, and she's up on a mountain, and she's looking out, and she sees, are you ready for this, the Mediterranean. Okay? So it's possible for Moses to go up on a mountaintop and see all of what? The land of Israel that God was giving them. All of Canaan that God was giving them. Isn't that amazing? Okay? So he gets to see the land. But he's also told, when you go up there to see the land, you're going to die. Okay? This is where you're going to die. You're going to die on that mountain. So, and it's because of his sin in striking the rock that Moses could not enter the land. It's because of his sin in striking the rock that Moses could not enter the land. Wow. So Moses asked the Lord to set a man above over Israel in his place to lead them. So naturally Moses is going to say, you know what, they need somebody to lead them, Lord. Set a man over them. All right? Give them a man to set over them. So the Lord told Moses to lay hands on Joshua as the leader of Israel. All right, now, so I gave you also a note there about the significance of laying on of hands in the Old and New Testament. There, it was used in several different ways. At least three are listed there. And uh, so it's not always the same thing, but in this instance, it's laying on of hands to impart a gift or to impart an office, okay? To impart an office. So Moses is told to lay hands on Joshua as the leader of Israel. Okay? Now, from there, we're going to get into chapters 28 and 29, which are going to, again, list laws. So I'm not going to go through all these laws with you. However, I am going to tell you what each section is about. Okay? And so again, why are they doing this? To tell the people what they need to do when they get into the land of Canaan. So first thing, in chapter 28, verses 1 to 15, you're going to see a discussion concerning regular offerings that everybody was to make. Regular offerings, okay? 
So first of all, in verses 1 to 8, there were daily offerings that were required of them. Daily offerings. Verses 9 to 10, there were Sabbath offerings. Okay, so Sabbath happens every week. So that these are offerings that they had to make every week. And then in, in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 28, there are monthly offerings that they had to do. So daily offerings, Sabbath offerings, monthly offerings. Wow, what a system, right? What a system, okay? Then we look at verses 16 of chapter 28 through 29, verse 40, and you're going to see the festival offerings. Now, these are offerings that are made at certain festivals. So in verses 16 through 25 of chapter 28, he's going to talk about the offerings that need to be made at the Passover. Verses 26 through 31 are the offerings that need to be made at the Feast of Weeks. Chapter 29, verses 1 to 6, are the offerings that need to be made at the Feast of Trumpets. And then, in chapter 29, verses 7 through 11, is the Day of Atonement. Okay? The Day of Atonement. Chapter 29, verses 12 through 28, is the offerings that need to be made at the Feast of Tabernacles. And then in verses 39 through 40 is just a general statement saying that these are the requirements that are going to be required of all of the Israelites when they're in Canaan, okay? So it's kind of a summary statement. All right, let me just stop for a moment. All right, so when you think about this, several times now as we've gone through the book, there's always a listing of the offerings that they need to make and a reminder of the offerings that they need to make. So would you say that these were pretty much an integral part of the Jews in that day as far as their daily lives? Okay. Now where would you go and make those offerings at? The tabernacle. Okay, so the tabernacle then was very central to their lives. Okay, so let's come forward now. We're in 2019. And to observant Jews... Because you have Jews that are just Jewish in name only, national identity, but they, or ethnic identity, but they're not observant. But to observant Jews, is there something missing from their spiritual life? Well, not just the tabernacle, but what's missing from their daily lives? The offerings. They can't make the offerings. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because there's no what? Temple. Now do you understand their spiritual life is incomplete without what, folks? The temple. Because that's where they would go and make these daily offerings, monthly offerings, Sabbath offerings. They would make these offerings at all of the feasts. Okay, now do you understand why they want that temple? You got, cause they're like, why would they, you know, come on, seriously, you know, we look at it from an American perspective. I don't have to go to church. I mean, what, what do you mean? I don't need, this is an integral part of their spiritual lives. Do you understand? Now, do you understand why they need to have the temple? Why do you, you see what I'm saying? All right, so laws concerning offerings. Now, there's also some laws here concerning vows, all right? Vows, 
All right, so these are, this is, again, we've talked about vows before, but these are other vows that are being reiterated here now. So for instance, in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 30, there is discussion concerning vows that are made to the Lord. Verse 3 through 5, vows of a woman living with her father. Okay, so these are vows of a woman. What do you do about that if she's living with her father? Verses 6 through 8, vows of a newly married woman. Okay? Verse 9, vows of a widowed or divorced woman. Verse 10 through 15, Vows of a married woman. And then verse 16 is just a general summary statement of the nature of these regulations about why they're important. Okay? All right, so those are the laws. Now, here's where we're going to spend a little bit of time. I'm going to go through this, but this is very important in light of what you hear today as people not who are trying to denounce Christianity or denounce your Christianity who have no interest, we need to talk about this, okay? So first of all, now we see the judgment of the Midianites. Now, who are the Midianites? Well, we just talked about a guy by the name of Balaam. Remember Balaam? He was, what, brought by Balak, the Moabite king, to come in and curse Israel, and he couldn't do that. Well, he led the Moabites into... Uh, basically causing Israel to sin and the Midianites to, to cause the Israel men, Israelite men to sin by committing sexual sin. All right, so this is the Midianites. So before Moses was to die, the Lord commanded Israel to take vengeance on Midian. All right, so God is telling them, I want you to take vengeance on Midian. Now, folks, when we talk about taking vengeance on somebody in God's perspective here, what does that mean? Pay them back? Do something dirty to them? I mean, what are we talking about here? Yeah, eliminate them. Wipe them out. Alright? So Israel defeated the Midians and killed all the males, including their five kings, and guess who, folks? Balaam. They killed him. Even though he knew the Lord? Yep. He may have known the Lord, but was he living for the Lord, folks? He wasn't. He led them into sin. He encouraged them to lead them into sin. So Israel destroyed their cities and took the women and children captive. All right, so they destroyed the cities took the women and children captive. Moses was angry that Israel had taken captives and not utterly destroyed Midian. Because God told him to do what, folk? Destroy them all. But here they go again. They don't fulfill everything. All right, so they kill all the males, probably the males, 20 and older, who could what? Fight, all right? They destroyed their cities, destroyed everything, but they keep the women... And they keep the children alive as captives. Moses is upset because they're supposed to do what, folks? Destroy them. God said to destroy them. Okay. 
Here's what must happen. The Midianite women were the source of Israel's sin that had caused the plague among Israel. Remember? It was the Midianite women who had led them into sexual sin, which resulted in them also going off and worshiping Baal, a false god, which then resulted in what? A plague that struck all of them until, until the Phianus, the priest, what stabs the two people who were together, that stopped everything. And by that point, though, what, 27,000 of them were dead. Okay? Because of this, because of their sin. So all the women who knew a man, all right, we understand what that term means, right? That is, that's all the women who were not virgins, who knew a man, and all the male children were to be killed. All right, so he makes it so, okay, you can keep them because they're going to become slaves. You can keep them, but all the women who knew a man and all the children were to be killed. He goes on then in this passage and says that the soldiers of Israel were to stay outside of the camp for seven days for purification. So this is a standard. When they would go to war, because they were killing people and touching dead bodies, they had to stay outside of the camp because they were unclean for seven days and be purified. Okay, so they had to be purified. The spoils of war, so whatever it is that they took, gold, clothes, whatever, had to be purified by passing through the fire. Well, you say, well, wait a minute. Now, some things would get burned up. That which could not endure the fire was to be washed with the waters of purification. Okay? All right? The spoils were to be divided according to a strict formula with a portion for the soldiers. Actually, what you'll read there is they were to divide it in half. The half, the first half would then be given to the soldiers. The second half, the remaining portion, was to be given to the people of Israel. And from the portions of the soldiers the, and the people, a portion was given to the Lord. So the Lord took part of what was given to the soldiers and the people, and it was given to the Lord, which meant it was given to the tabernacle for the use by the priests and the Levites. Do you understand? Okay. All right, now let's talk... For, Let's talk for a moment here. All right, so the big objection you hear is, how can you worship that God? How can you follow that God who kills all these people, wipes them all out, women and children? How can you worship a God like that? You ever heard that argument? Okay. How do you respond to that? I'll tell you some of the responses I've heard. How do you respond to that? Okay, God defending his own people is what Bruce would say. Okay, anybody else? All right, God won't tolerate sin. All right, he's got to judge it. Okay, that's good, Dave. Anybody else? What are some thoughts that you've heard? How about if I help you? Or maybe you would say, I've never really thought about that, George, because that wasn't asked of me. Okay? 
Trust me, folks, it's out there. You will be asked at some point. Here's what I'm going to say. Here's the one that I've heard that really is not good. Okay? Although this is what a lot of people will say in Christian circles. They'll say, well, that was the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is a forgiving God. Have you heard that one? Okay? That's actually not good, folks. Because God is the same today, today, and forever. Do you understand what I'm saying? Actually, I'm going to explain to you what's going on here. All right, what you're going to see in the scriptures is this, over and over, is that people groups, ethnicities, nations, are at some point going to be judged by God. They're going to be judged. What does that mean? They're going to be destroyed and wiped out. Throughout the scripture, for instance, when, in the earlier chapters, when we were doing our study, we talked about the Amorites, and God said, well, their time hasn't come because the numbers of their sins are not complete. There is a point where God says, I've run out patience with a people group. Do you understand? And then I will execute judgment on them. Now, executing judgment on a nation, folks, let's just be honest, is what? Spanking them? Now, what is it? Yeah, wiping them out. Yes. Okay. I mean, destroying them. When God executed judgment on Israel for its sin, it was after a period of time, but he did it with, first of all, with who? The Babylonians, and took them off into 70 years of captivity. And God says, when you read through that portion, that he's using them as a tool of what? Judgment. He's using Babylon as a tool of judgment. Here's what we're seeing now, is that in this passage, the Midianites have reached that point with God, and God is using who? The Israelites as a tool of judgment against them, and they are to what? Be wiped out. We're going to see that a little bit later on. Well, we just talked about it in the morning message. Remember Saul? He was supposed to wipe out who? The Amalekites. God was bringing judgment on him. And again, he's one of these folks that didn't completely do everything God told him to do, right? Because he kept what? The best of everything, and he kept King Agag. And that was not good. Not good at all. See, what, the, the point is, is what you need to understand, and this is what the issue is. The issue is not that God would destroy a nation, because when you understand why he's destroying a nation, here's what the ultimate issue is, is that God is a God who executes judgment for sins against him. Do you understand? That's ultimately what people don't like. They don't like the concept that we are accountable to somebody that we want to use a higher power or whatever, but that we're accountable to somebody else, period. We are all accountable. And that same judge who would execute judgment on nations is the same judge that sends people to where, folks? Hell. Do you understand? Now you're saying, well, that's, that sounds pretty bad. Yeah, but it's the same judge who provides grace to people if they would what? Embrace him. Embrace him how? Because Jesus, what? Died on the cross for them. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So when you hear that argument, what's really going on here is not just, their struggle is, yeah, with God, but it's ultimately with a God who what? Executes judgment. 
Did you understand what I'm saying? Executes judgment. Do you, you see what I'm saying? Now, it's going to be interesting when you get into the book of, of Joshua and Judges. He, he does this with some cities, but with other peoples, he doesn't wipe them out. Why? Because they still have a purpose. God still has a purpose for using them in the life of who? Israel. Now, here's the thing you need to realize. Scripture very clearly says that all Gentile nations will be what? Judged at some point. And folks, can I tell you when that will be? The ultimate judgment on all Gentile nations is when he comes back when? At, at the very end in Armageddon, right? When all the nations of the world will be gathered against Israel. And God will wreck judgment on all of them. Do you understand? All Gentile nations. Now, I've got to put this arrest because I, I hear this all the time. I'm going to tell you something. America is not God's chosen nation. I don't care what you hear on the radio. There is only one chosen nation in the Bible. What's that nation, folks? Israel. America is just one of Gentile nations. Do you understand? Rick, recognize that. You gotta believe, you gotta know that. There, it's, that's the reason why it's not mentioned in the scripture. I don't care what some bestseller on the New York Times says about all the stuff that happened in 9-11 and stuff and how that, it's not in the Bible. There's only one nation in the Bible. That's who, folks? Israel. Do you understand? When you see the execution here, it's because God's judging another Gentile nation and he will judge all their nations for their sins. Okay? For their sins. All right? All right, any questions? Real quick, we've got a couple minutes. Any questions? Yeah, Lori. Yes. Each nation has a choice too, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep, we would. Yep. 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 Yeah, in fact, here's what I'm going to say to help you wrap your brain around it. You need to understand, do not look at God in terms of humanity. Okay? Do not look at God in terms of humanity. Because humanity, if I'm irritated with you, does that sometimes guide me in how I act towards you? 
and, 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 you know, like sometimes I act out of anger. Do you do? I don't think anybody else here does that, right? Okay. <laughs> I mean, we all, Robbie, did you, do you understand what I'm saying? All right. So we, 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 we all understand how human beings are. What the problem is, is that we make God like a human being. But I need to remind you that one of the characteristics of God is God is what? Love. But God is also perfect justice. There is no sin in God. When God does something, it's not for a sinful purpose. In fact, very clearly in Ezekiel, it very clearly says in Ezekiel that God does not take delight in the destruction of the what? The wicked. He doesn't take delight in the destruction of the wicked. He doesn't take delight in the destruction of Midian or the Amalekites or anybody else. He doesn't take the destruction. But why does he do it? Because he's perfectly just, but he's perfectly loving. It all works together. Now, how does that work together? How can you be perfectly loving and perfectly just? I don't understand it, folks, because that's God. And Lori's right when you say, if if we could understand it, then we would be God. Do you understand? But all I know is, is there's no sin in him. There's sin in you and I, right? Okay? All right. And uh, next week, we'll continue on wrapping up numbers, okay?